Welcome to Feeding the Flock, Season 9, and our expositions through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're currently in chapter 13 at verse 11. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined us today for this Bible study. Let's start reading, why don't we, right away, as far as what Paul has to say in this final paragraph. It says, verse 11, chapter 13 of the book of 2 Corinthians, he writes this, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This, of course, is what uh, comprises uh, the closing, that is, the closing greetings and the benediction in this uh, second epistle of, uh, of Paul to the Corinthian church. And and because it is this uh, final paragraph in which uh, this letter is being closed out, a lot of times it doesn't really make that much uh, traction for preachers to preach from or for sermons to be made out of these little uh, greetings or these little benedictions at the end of a book. And yet uh, they are significant. They continue to give us an insight into Paul himself and to his heart for the people he has led to Christ and now in this occasion has uh, has written them two major uh, letters. And in fact, he's probably about to make the third uh, visit, even though that uh, one visit in between, it's, it's called the sorrowful visit. Uh, it wasn't probably very long. It was just there for, for uh, some corrections to be made and some exhortations and rebukes, perhaps, and some discipline, uh, maybe even, to be handed out. We don't know exactly what all went on there, except it was a very sad meeting and it wasn't uh, uh, really immediately productive. And yet, on the other hand, he has now written this, uh, this second letter to this same church. He's not giving up on them. This is a problematic church. Uh, we found that out in the first epistle. And uh, uh, of course, it's continued to be a problematic church because of the influences of these false apostles that have come in. They have disrupted things. They have caused divisions. And uh, somehow or another in this congregation, there has been this susceptibility to this kind of thing. And Paul understands that. He's, he's been uh, addressing that all along, even from chapter one of the first letter, all the way through chapter 12 and 13 of the second letter. And again, he's not done. He's has, he has these few little things he still has yet to say, even at the ending of 
this epistle. And so uh, uh, this this is what we would call the greetings and the benedictions. And uh, sometimes the greetings and benediction may uh, only comprise a few sentences, uh, and that's the case here. Sometimes it comprises almost an entire chapter, and that like is in uh, uh, Romans chapter 16, and where there are uh, uh, lists of names after names of people, both those on the receiving end as those uh, as well on the giving end of greetings. But here, this is quite brief, and yet uh, its brevity uh, only adds to uh, how profound these words can be, because these are the last words that Paul uh, gives to these people in written form. Now, uh, of course, he he makes that third journey, that third trip, and that third visit that he has referred to, and that is already a part of history, that he went back to Corinth and finished up his work there. We'll get to that in a moment or two, but right now, Verse 11 says, finally, brethren. And I just wanted to look at that just for a moment, that here he is at the end, and he still calls these people brethren. He uh, has an idea that these people, at least for the most part, and the majority, maybe a, a great amount of the majority, um, is still worth that title. They are still part of the family of God, and Paul wants them to know this. Perhaps the only people that have truly been affected have been a handful, but those handful have uh, done their part to try to influence the entire congregation. And isn't that the case in many ways uh, in many churches in which uh, a small group here or or uh, uh, very individuals, they find each other and they're discontented and, and they find each other and they, they grow this discontent and somehow it begins to be a phenomenon. It begins to be a trend. And so that, I believe, is what's going on here. Paul has written two letters now to stop and halt this trend toward this disloyalty to Christ and this disloyalty even to himself as the apostle of this church. So he says, finally, brethren, that gives you uh, still the heart of this apostle, that he still considers them a part of the family of God, at least the majority of the congregation. He is not writing them off, even though at the top of this chapter, he tells them to examine yourself, to test yourselves, to see whether or not you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. So in some regard, Paul allows for the fact that there may be this small group of people that have identified themselves with this church, and yet they are not believers, and they may not pass this test. And, uh, and yet, on the other hand, even in the midst of, of this likelihood of, of this handful of people, Paul still accredits the 
congregation as being brethren, as being the part of the family of God. He is not writing them off. And uh, isn't that the case sometimes that uh, that uh, we, we tend to just uh, lump everybody together and uh, the right people don't get the encouragement that they need and uh, everybody gets the rebuke, but nobody gets the encouragement. Paul knows their brethren. Sometimes even the judgments get so strong that they they make accusations or or condemnation and say I don't think anybody here is saved. Well, that is not what Paul uh, has come to believe. He believes this congregation is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ and he wants them to know that and he wants them to know his heart that he has not uh dis discounting them or writing them off the picture or making them uh, somehow in the category of being unsaved. He's not saying that at all. This church is composed of brothers and sisters in Christ. And he, so he has some additional instructions for them. First of all, he starts by telling them to rejoice. By the way, this could be understood as as a kind of of farewell. In fact, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Revised Standard Version, the new Revised Standard Version, translates it as farewell. The NIV translates it as uh, goodbye, and and yet it still literally does mean rejoice, and that's okay. Because that's what we do sometimes, even in our own greetings or in our own goodbyes. That's what we are implying, uh, even in our farewells. And in this case, uh, Paul adds this idea of joy or rejoicing. That is a good place to start. Rejoice that that it's not a, a, any worse than what it was, but also rejoice in what you have in Christ. Rejoice in the fact that you are still brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul even says earlier in chapter 13, he says, I trust that you will not fail the test. And, uh, and uh, neither would I. And so he says, rejoice, be made complete. This again is a repeat of his prayer request. Notice that is exactly what he prayed for in verse nine. He says, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for that you be made complete. And that word is one that's used of mending nets. It's one of used also uh, of putting uh, a broken uh, limb back together, a broken uh, leg or an arm, of resetting it back into its uh, proper connection to each other. That is the completion that Paul is wanting this church to have. He wants the individual believers to be complete. And that seems to imply this, this whole idea of maturity that he wants every believer to grow into Christ, grow in Christ and grow up in Christ and be mature people, not immature, not those that are weighed down with sins, not those that are so weighed down with sins that they are having continued social problems like at the end of uh, chapter 12. All of these disruptions in the church had their root in the 
uh, sensuality and the immorality and the impurity from from all the sexual sins that some of these people had gotten involved in. And they'd found these false apostles somehow condoning their sins. And because they condoned their sins, then they had all this flesh going on in terms of of their social interaction as a church. They were causing divisions. They were causing strife and angry tempers and jealousy and disputes and and gossip and arrogance, all of those things that were a part of that congregation. And Paul knows that it's rooted in this sensuality. It's rooted in the susceptible people that have gotten themselves uh, into sexual sins. And uh, so Paul, when he says, be made complete, this is addressed uh, perhaps directly to these individuals, but also in terms of when they repent of these sins, it adds a completion to the body, the local congregation, the church, the, the group of people gathered in the Lord's name. They have a completion as a group because now the repentance means the sins have been uh, set under the blood of Christ, the sins have been forgiven, the sins have been corrected, and they are now set on a new course as a congregation if these individuals have come to repentance. And if they have, then the congregation can be healed once again of all of these other things that have gone wrong. And so that, again, is an individual application as well as a group application of being complete, being made complete. First uh, Thessalonians, Paul had this heart for them. He says in verse, verse 10 of chapter 3 of First Thessalonians, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is happen, uh, What is lacking in your faith. That's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians as well as for the Corinthians that they be made complete. We'll be back right after this musical interlude. Welcome back. We're still in verse 11 of chapter 13 of the book of 2 Corinthians. And in verse 11, in the middle of that verse, uh, Paul has already been talking to them about rejoicing, about being made complete. And then he goes on to say, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. This church needs uh, these 
exhortations. They need to practice these things. They'll learn how to do this. He, he talks about being comforted. Do you realize that's the, that's the way Paul started this letter? Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He began with comfort. Because why? Because there's been a lot of gossip and arrogance and disturbances and and all sorts of disruptions in this church by selfish people and immature people. And he knows there have been feelings that have been hurt and there are wounds that need to be healed. And so he begins the letter with this this address uh, of, of God of all comfort. And if God is the God of comfort, then he can comfort this church and he can comfort you. Even though you may be going through pain, heartache, you may be going through turmoil yourself. And God is the God of comfort. In fact, that's one of the names for the Holy Spirit. He's called the comforter. That's one of the things he does is bring comfort. So Paul tells this church, be comforted. He goes on, be like-minded. And this doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we all have to think alike uh, or that we all uh, are uniformly uh, chanting the same chants. It does mean that, that that we think alike in terms of the purpose and the plan and the character of Christ. That means we practice those things that exhibit Jesus living in us as a part of us. And so when he says like-minded, uh, you see, he began the first epistle with this whole idea of these divisions. He says in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. This was one of Paul's goals. It uh, wasn't to make them all alike. That uh, that uniformity isn't God, Paul's goal or God's goal, but it does mean that we are of the same mind in the sense of our fellowship together and our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what the God's word says to us. And we're willing to, to uh, serve one another God's words and God's truth. And that is like-mindedness and live in peace and avoid these these uh, divisions, avoid these arguments and judgments and condemnations, avoid the gossip and the arrogance and and uh, the uh, all of those things that cause this the uh, the social disruptions and of course avoid and repent of those sins that uh, perhaps caused these social disruptions. So he says. In Philippians, he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is part of our goal. We have to keep the gospel. That is our one mind. The preaching of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins, raising again from the grave, ascending into heaven and sending the Holy Spirit as a, as a, uh, as the agent of God in us so that we have a message to the world and we are committed to the 
presenting that message, and we are committed to growing in that message. And uh, that is our agreement. That is our same mind, is the preaching of the gospel, according to Romans I mean, excuse me, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, at least the last part of that verse. Also, Philippians chapter 2, 2, Paul says to that church, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Where does this come from? It comes from even something he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He asks a question that is quoted from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The question comes from Isaiah 40, verse 13. The question is, for who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? And then Paul answers that Old Testament question with New Testament theology. And he says this, but we have the mind of Christ. You see, that is our one mind. We need to know how Jesus thinks about things. That means we need to study Jesus. That means we need to study his words, but it means more than that because he gave authority to not just his his own words that he spoke while he was here on earth, but he also gave authority for the Holy Spirit to inspire the apostles and prophets to write the rest of the New Testament, and that gives us the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is something we need to learn. It is not automatic. It's not just something to memorize even though memorization is good. It is, it is the fact that we absorb the thoughts of Christ, the character of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we begin to think like Christ. That is this one mind, this like-mindedness. We still are allowed by even God himself and God's words and God, God's own Holy Spirit, we are allowed a variety of personalities, a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries. All of that is embedded in this whole thing that we call church. But there are, there are, the, there are these goals, this, this main goal especially of preaching the gospel and honoring Christ is a part of the one mind that we do have. And yes, we may approach it and serve each other in a variety of ways, and we have a variety of things on our mind, but we have this one goal of the mind of Christ. So he goes on, he says, live in peace. That's why it's we are able to live in peace is because we have the same purpose. And that purpose is surrounded the pur- person of Christ and his message to the world. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So Paul is saying, you're not in this all alone. This isn't something you whip up in a service uh, by, by everybody cheerleading each other. This isn't that kind of thing. This is God's presence in you, and you are affirmed in these qualities of character by the God who lives in you, by the God who is present in you, and that God also exhibits these same qualities of what? Of love and peace. That is our instrument of accomplishment, is the God of love and peace dwelling in us in relationship to one another. 
And he goes on, he says, he will be with you all. And he continues with verse 12, where he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this greeting, of course, in that culture, had the idea of a certain kind of affection, a certain kind of trust. And uh, in fact, it's a part of Paul's instructions and greetings in uh, various epistles. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 16 says to greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Here, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26 says, to greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And even Peter gets in on this uh, this exhortation because he closes out his book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this this was never instructed by Jesus himself. We we know that sometimes it was practiced at least once by the elders and uh, and Paul uh, the elders of Ephesus and Paul on the beach at Miletus because because the elders uh, uh, came and met Paul there and they had this this uh, exchange between them and they they knew this was Paul's final. Uh, time with them and they they it says that they just uh, held on to each other and they wept and they kissed Paul you see because it's a sign of affection and it was it was this is a holy kiss this has nothing to do with it, with the sexual immorality that is mentioned earlier this has no no uh no uh, sexual implications here at all. This is a, a cultural thing of kissing each other on the on the cheek or or whatever that that was, and that that means that we uh, trust each other. We have an affection for each other. And uh, in many churches, if if you give a handshake, then that's what that means. Or if you give a hug, that's what that means. And uh, uh, tried to, not to make this too literal, although uh, in some places this is perfectly appropriate, and uh, and we need to learn how to make it appropriate without having some sort of odd feelings about this kind of instruction, because this is a part of what it means to live together as a church, to to know each other and to trust each other and to invest in each other, and so. It goes on, it says, all the saints greet you. And so he's writing this uh, perhaps from the Macedonian churches, and he's writing this to them and telling them in uh, in the Achaian churches that uh, that these saints in uh, Thessalonia or, or maybe Berea or maybe other places, that these, uh, maybe Philippi, these saints also are a part of this greeting, uh, even though they can't be present with them. And then, and then, in closing, Paul gives this benediction and he uses the triune God in this benediction. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we're saved. We're not saved because we earn it. We are saved because of grace, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And he he offers us the free gift of eternal life by his grace to be received by faith. 
and faith alone. And he says, and the love of God that is demonstrated in God's own son. God loved us so much that he gave his only son for us so that we could be a part of his family and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God has sent us so that we wouldn't be isolated and alone. He has sent us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in taking the word of God into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is involved in making us a part of each other in our lives, of making us invest in each other in our lives, of causing us to grow in our gifts and our our, uh, contributions to each other as we grow together in Christ and as we preach the gospel together in Christ. And he says, may these triune persons of the triune God be with you all. That is a good place to end. And you might want to uh, say uh, in the conclusion, was this letter successful? Well, I think it was because Paul did arrive there and he stayed there three whole months and wrote the entire book of Romans from this city. And he couldn't have done that had had these people still had the problems they started with. Also, it says in Romans chapter 15, it says, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and that's what Paul is talking about, is that there's no more left to do here in this city. That's what he's saying. And so evidently these things resulted in a, in a good outcome. These people responded to God's words and Paul's exhortations and it came fruitfulness. And uh, uh, so we leave this book with you in Jesus name. Father, thank you so much for what you have done through these words in the hearts of many believers throughout the, the, uh, the history of the churches. And these passages have meant so much to us. We pray that they would continue to form our thoughts into one mind in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this today. This is Glendale Tony. I'd like to invite you to join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock. <laughs>